Welcome to the Reach Podcast with your pastor, Philip Jackson. There is a stirring, there is a hunger, Lord, we are thirsty to drink from your well. I'll hear the voices. So we are, um, take your Bibles and open up to Acts chapter 3. Some cool things we're going to talk about tonight. If you remember last week, we, uh, we looked at the first 10 verses of Acts chapter 3 at the, um, the crippled man who was, who was sitting outside the beautiful gate, and Peter and John come to, come to church that day to worship, and um, this guy asked them for money, and they had the perception to look for God doing something in their midst. This had become the norm for them to see God moving. And if you remember the challenge from last week, um, we have the responsibility to also be looking for ways that God has, has provided opportunities for us to see uh, himself be known in our generation, our re- regular everyday life. Um, this, uh, it's important for us to think about how, as, as we read the accounts of the book of Acts, um, it is easy for us to think, well, yes, this is, this is the apostles, this is the disciples, right? These are people that walk with Jesus, and so they have a life that is somehow different than our life, that somehow the same God that they served was, is different than the God that we serve, and that's just not the case. Um, one of the challenges that we face in, uh, in America is that we tend to think that God is done doing miraculous things, and that is just simply not true. Um, for a for a mature child of God, we are going to see God move in our lives um, in every way, and um, we need to be looking for those opportunities. Um, through the power of the Holy Spirit, this guy was healed outside the temple. And if you remember the last part of the scene when we left off last week, he is holding on to Peter and John as they walk into the temple, and he's jumping up and down, cheering and praising God. This commotion started to make a scene. Okay, people started to notice him. And um, they began to notice, wait a second, this guy, we know this guy. This guy's been sitting outside this, this gate for the last 40 years, and he has been uh, begging for money. He's always been there. And what they can tell, one thing about him is that he's still wearing his beggar's rags. This guy is clearly, something has happened to him. So in this lesson we're going to look at tonight, it's going to teach us, teach us about how we should react to the supernatural events that take place in our life. Okay, and um, believe it or not, there are supernatural things happening in your life right now. Um, the challenge is that a lot of times we are willfully ignorant of them. So we're going to look at um, these moments following this healing and how Peter and John responded. So check this out. We're going to start in verse 11 of Acts chapter 3. We're going to read um, through the end of the chapter and a little bit into chapter 4. But let's start with these first uh, couple of verses, starting in verse 11. While he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, Men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Or why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety we had made him walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and and disowned in the presence of Pilate. And when he had decided to release him, But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. But put to death the prince of life, the one who God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus, 
which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. And the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of all of you all. The first thing we're going to look at is a miracle is that miracles are normal. So remember, Peter and John are literally just going to church as they entered the temple. The healed man was clinging to them. He says, these guys have something that is important, that's significant. Um, notice that the people, it says that the people ran together to them. Everybody is craning their necks to see what's going to happen next. This dude is jumping up and down when he has never been able to use his feet in his lifetime. But for Peter and John, notice their response. Peter says, uh, he starts to notice that people are paying attention to them, and, and he says, um, why are you amazed at this? Wait a second, what? Why are you guys surprised? If you have been walking with Jesus, I mean seriously walking with Jesus, in an abiding, understanding, spirit-driven, faith-foundational uh, way, you see ridiculous things happen around you. You do. And to the people that aren't used to this, they see things in your life and they're like, that's weird. How did that happen? I know that there are at least several of you that I could call on at this very moment and ask you what God is doing in your life right now, and you could tell me he's done something ridiculous. Peter and John's response here is profound because they say, why are you amazed, right? The, the children of God, need, they should expect supernatural things to happen. These are the same people. He says, you're, you're children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Don't you remember that only a couple of weeks ago, a, a, few, a month ago, Jesus was doing miracles. Don't you remember when he fed the 5,000? Don't you remember when all these things happened? Don't you remember what happened just last week at Pentecost when all these people came to faith in Jesus? You guys should know this. You have been reading about the miracles of God in the Old Testament all of your lives. So let me ask you this question, child of God. Have you seen him move in supernatural ways in your life in the last week? In the last two weeks? In the last month? When was the last time that you saw God do something incredible in your life that cannot be explained? Because to a child of God, these are things that are obvious. These are just, this is normal. This isn't something that is, that is uh, just significant in one moment. This is the everyday life of a believer. These are people that they're talking to, that Peter and John are talking to, who call themselves the people of God, and yet they were surprised to see God move. Peter wasn't surprised to see God do anything because he had grown familiar with how God works. Man, I feel sorry for people who live their whole lives and never know what it's really like to chase Jesus. The desperate, white-knuckling, God, I can't do anything but follow you. I'm not chasing you for the next miracle. I'm chasing you because I can do nothing else. Peter and John have realized that this isn't just a special event. This is just a regular day of worship. We often think that God requires our administration for revival, that somehow we've got to organize the perfect worship night, or we've got to organize the perfect event, or the perfect emotional response. But the reality is that if we chase Jesus and we experience the truth of His Word, the revelation of who He is shakes us to our core. You see, our generation, in the town that we live in, everything is driven religiously through emotion. If I can get the emotion high enough, then God's going to show up. But we have this backwards. Because the way that it works is that when God shows up, the emotion happens. I can't help it. 
In every instance where in the Bible where it, it talks about someone having an encounter with God, there's an emotional response. But the emotional response doesn't precede God. It's a result. Because when we see God authentically as who He is, we cannot help but know that we are not what He is. Peter and, J- Peter and John didn't have to put together all this elaborate thing. They were just going to church. Notice that they acknowledged that they weren't the ones that healed the man, but it was the power of God who did it. Who, who did it. Here's something else that we tend to get wrong. I want to teach you guys a word if you haven't heard it yet. The word is charlatan. How many of you have ever heard that word before? Okay. A charlatan is someone who uses God language for their own gain. The quintessential picture is a preacher in a three-piece suit with a gold Rolex on his watch telling you that if he can just pay for this next jet, the word of God will get around the world. A charlatan is someone who says, if you want to get the most out of your life, you need to buy my book. They use their pulpit as a, as a, as a, as a stump to sell their latest bestseller. This is a charlatan. So if you ever meet or if you ever see a preacher who is more interested in selling you something other than Jesus, that's a charlatan. The reality is, when I have the choice to, to sell Jesus or to sell myself, I pale in comparison. So these people, they dress themselves up. In every instance of apostolic preaching and teaching in God's word, all of the focus is on Jesus. It is never on the preacher. It is never on the pastor. It's never on the movement. And it's never even on the local church. It's actually on Jesus always. Always, always, always Jesus. Jesus is supreme. Jesus is the master of all. Jesus is the one worthy of worship. Not me. Not Evergreen. Not Reach. Not you. Not even your family. Godly preaching is centered on glorifying Jesus and communicating the full weight of sin. Ungodly preaching is centered on glorifying anything other than Jesus. Peter says this. He tells them, that this same Jesus that they handed over and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him, they chose Barabbas, the rebel, the murderer, instead of Jesus. He describes him as the holy and righteous one. He says that you put to death the prince of life. Another way to translate that word prince is the originator of life. All throughout uh, the New Testament, And even in the Old Testament, Jesus is described as the originator of life. He is not just the one who created the world, Genesis 1-1, or John 1-1. Jesus is the originator of everything. He says, you chose a murderer over the originator and the sustainer of life. How often do we do that? We choose Barabbas. Over the Holy One. I choose to chase my own sinfulness instead of the Prince of Life, the Originator of Life. I choose what I want because I want it and I'm special, so I should get it instead of the Originator of Life. He says, You can't see miracles in your midst. You are amazed to see God moving. 
The reason why is because you're choosing yourself over the Prince of Life. You guys think that you are special because you come from a godly family. You've given yourself that title. But that's not what God says. But you know what? The thing's amazing is that their treachery against Jesus was doomed to fail because as soon as he died, Peter says that God raised him from the dead. The fact that they were witnesses of. He says, y'all put him in the, in the grave. You nailed him to a tree. And yet, we have actually eaten with him. We have put our fingers in the scars in his hands and his feet. We have seen his risen body. This is something that is not going to be changed. You see, but here we, under, we, un, we uncover the most significant appeal that a child of God can make for, to another person. And that is to know and have a relationship with Christ. The most significant thing about you, child of God, is that you are his image bearer. And that you have the distinct privilege of being able to tell others about the hope that you have found in Jesus. That is the most significant thing about your life. This isn't something that we should roll our eyes at and think, oh man, i got to go give this person the heavenly sales pitch. The genuine ministry of a child of God is going to be marked by the singular focus of making disciples. And so when God does supernatural things in your life, you have an opportunity to be able to communicate truth to someone because of that supernatural event. Guess what? If something as natural as bumping up against a glass of water and getting wet. The idea is that we should be so sold out, we should be so focused on knowing Christ and recognizing the everyday miracles of our life, those conversations are not difficult. Let me ask you this question. If someone asked you about your best friend, would you have to come up with a four-point sales pitch to tell people about them? Absolutely not. It's easy. Why? Because you love that person, you have a relationship with that person, you have common experiences with that person. When people ask me, hey, tell me about your wife. How much time do you have? I love my bride. She's amazing. But I can speak about her because I know her. Because we have spent time together. Same thing is true with our relationship with Jesus. This doesn't come down to a sales pitch. It comes down to you telling people about what God is doing in your life. They say that the faith of, this, uh, uh, of the situation, that the faith of Peter and John was the thing that made it possible for this man to be healed. Another one of the common misrepresentations of Scripture, especially of apostolic healing, is that your faith is what is required for you to be healed. That's not what this text is saying. He's, he's, they're referring to, Luke is referring to the faith of John and Peter, not the man. I met a young man a few months ago who grew up at a church here in town a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel church. And their family built their whole lives around serving in this church. That the idea that, that God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, good-looking, have success, and if you are not healthy, that means that you lack faith. Well, the challenge is that that senior pastor got cancer. So the church began to pray. Clearly, something's wrong here. And then the pastor died. So what's the problem? He's the pastor. How? Oh my goodness. If if that can happen to the pastor, what about me? What hope do I have? 
And as a result, that family was crushed from the outside because they built their faith on something that wasn't true. Peter and John here, they were aware of what God was doing and they were attuned to what God was saying. And so when they reached, when Peter reached his hand out and he told the man, what I have for you is not silver or gold, but what I give you and I give you in the name of Jesus Christ, he extended his hand in faith because he knew that God was going to be faithful in that moment. This yields to another important point. That Peter and John acknowledged that the healing of the man came from Jesus. Notice that they weren't building their, uh, their empire. Peter didn't tell everybody, hey, just wait until I get my book out in the stands. He didn't say, wait until our, our latest film gets out. He preached Jesus. Jesus as a testimony of the gospel, which we play no part in. To teach that healing only comes as a result of a person's faith is a misrepresentation of the testimony of Scripture and the doctrine of salvation. One of my favorite preachers is a man named Jonathan Edwards. He was, he was part of the, um, the, the Second Great Awakening in America. I love one of his quotes about salvation. He says this, he says, You contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. Here's the point. Is that God provides miracles to draw the attention of those who need to know him. Miracles are an everyday part of our life, not because God does magic tricks. Because God wants us to have a part in spreading the gospel. If we miss the everyday miracles that God has placed in front of us, then we miss opportunities to tell people about Jesus and to share the hope that's in us. It's not about selling something. It's not about getting hash marks on, on our, on our uh, belt as we go into heaven. It's about authentically seeing God move. But I want you to see something here next. I want you to see that miracles change everything. Look at these next few verses. Starting in verse 17, he says, And now, brethren, this is Peter continuing to talk. He says, Now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that, this, that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Therefore repent and return, so that your sins may be wiped away, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus, the Christ, appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets in the ancient times. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from from your brethren. To him you shall give heed, and to everything he says to you. He's talking about Jesus. Verse 23, And it will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel to his successor onward also announce these days. It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you first, God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. He says that even in your ignorance, God's glorified. He says, listen, I know that you chose Jesus over, you you chose Barabbas over Jesus. And he says, "I, I recognize that you did that in your own ignorance, just like your leaders did. They didn't understand what was happening. But even in that, God's glorified. 
one of the things that is hard for us to accept is that the works of God are often accomplished through the ignorance of men. He says that these things which God previously announced by the mouths of all the prophets were established in his divine power and orchestration. His Christ is going to suffer. His Christ was going to die so that we could know him. And what Peter is saying here is he's saying, listen, you were the first, you were the first in line to hear and to know this. The prophets have been saying this. We've been reading these scriptures since we were little children. Look at this obvious, this obvious testimony of what God has done, who Jesus is. He says, you get this. You should, you should know this. He points out that each prophecy that spoke about our path to redemption through Jesus was a signpost to heaven. As we go back and we read the Old Testament, we see Jesus. As we, as we read the New Testament, we see Jesus. I want you to think about this. When you read the Bible, most people have never been explained how to read the Bible, what it actually means, right? In the center is the cross where Jesus was crucified. This is the central point of all creation. Everything in the Old Testament over here points forward to Jesus. And everything in the New Testament points backward to Jesus. What he's saying is, he said, we've been studying these scriptures all of our lives. Just like if you were taking a road trip to a, to a city. Say we're going to Oklahoma City, right? If we're on the road, guess what we're going to see? We're going to see signs that say, Oklahoma City, 20 miles. Oklahoma City, 15 miles. Right? These are signposts that tell us where we're going. This is what the Old Testament was. This is what Peter is talking about. You know what this is? This is significant because the prophecies that God made about Jesus and the fulfillment of those prophecies are not just God showing His power and flexing His might. Every confirmed prophecy and every prophecy that's been made in Scripture is God telling us, I love you. I love you enough to show you I have orchestrated all of this out because I want to be able to tell you from Genesis to Revelation that you matter to me, that you are special to me, that I would do anything for you. The natural response for such a great expression of love, Peter says, is to repent and return so that our sins can be wiped away. He says that this leads to refreshment in the presence of the Lord. I want to talk about that for a second. He uses this verb that's translated wiped away, and it describes wiping ink off of a page. But the ink in the ancient world is different than the ink that we use today. The ink that we use today is full of acid. It has acid in it. And, it, and it actually attaches to the page, and so you can't really get rid of it, right? Even the erasable ink is hard to get off the page. But in the ancient world, um, the ink that they used had no acid. That meant that if you, could, if you took a wet cloth or a damp sponge, you could literally wipe the ink off of the page or the papyrus that it was written on. The language that he's talking about here is he's talking about God wiping away our sins. It means that there's not even an impression left. They don't exist anymore. He's saying that the process and the result of repentance and returning back to this hope of what God has said is like our sins never existed. One writer put it this way. He says, God does, not, God does far more than merely cross out a believer's sins. He wipes them away completely. They are gone beyond the possibility of review or recall. Even their horrible sin of rejecting and executing their Messiah was not in, indelible and could be wiped away. He talks about 
that to accept this repentance, to accept this forgiveness, and have our sins wiped away would lead to refreshment in the presence of the Lord. I want you to consider this. If you've been in church for any amount of time, I want to talk to the church kids for a second. Okay? You guys probably think that you're pretty good, right? Did Bible school. You did kids camp. You probably did Falls Creek or something like Falls Creek. You did some sort of a youth camp. You've been, I don't know how many worship nights. You're a pretty good person, right? I can't tell you how many people I meet who have spent all of their life in church that have no refreshment anywhere in them. They don't. They're dry and cracked and sorrow-ridden. There's no refreshment there. There's frustration and anxiety and depression and anger. Salvation doesn't just mean that we are going to be saved at the end of the difficult and hard life, but that we would experience abundance through the grace and power of God working around us in our sinful environment. We don't walk in defeat or negativity, but as confident children of the King of the universe. Paul says in, in, in Romans chapter 8, he says, But in all things we are overwhelmingly conquerors through him who loved us. Here's another question. Is your faith, your walking with Christ, is it refreshing? When you interact with people, do they leave you refreshed? Or do you suck the life out of them? When they come, in, they come into contact with your miracle-saturated, love-saturated, mercy-saturated, patient-saturated life, do they experience Jesus? Or do they experience a black hole of crap? Man, that doesn't sound like me some days. But look at this, Peter, he says that we that those who return and repent, their sins are wiped away and they are refreshed by the presence of the Lord. This refreshment is contagious. This crowd has been drawn to this moment. This, this beggar, this cripple, this guy who had no hope and no future and no options, he is sitting there leaping in front of their eyes and they don't know what to do with it. You think this guy is sparking joy? Absolutely. Why? Because he met Jesus. A child of God is not known for their unwavering positivity, but their unrelenting confidence in who Jesus is. So many people walk around with disbelief that God does miracles today and they ignore the most significant miracle of their lifetime. That God takes their unbelieving, skeptical hearts and changes them into the likeness of Christ. You want to know the most significant miracle that you're going to see in your life? is that God is going to take you as a broken, selfish person and He's going to transform you into the likeness of Jesus. You tell me, Pastor, I don't see any miracles in my life. Well, you know, if you read God's Word, your life tends to change. And that's a miracle. Earlier tonight, we memorized Scripture. Taylor and I have been praying about this, and you know, one of the things that God has laid on my heart about what we do here, 
one of our key, uh, our, our key foundational principles is that we want to change the world. But don't we, wanna, we don't want to go everywhere and neglect home. That starts with me. It starts with the transformation here. Romans 12, 1 and 2 became our, our uh, foundational verse. To be not, transformed by, by, be not conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, which is your reasonable service. And so we are going to make Scripture memory a key part of who we are as a people. This miracle happens whenever we submit to who God wants us to be. And this promise of life is going to be the culmination. It's going to culminate with the return of King Jesus. Notice it says that at the appointed time, he's going to come back. That heaven must receive him. That, means, that, that word literally means to hold on to him until the period of restoration of all things which is the fulfillment of the things that God spoke of by the mouths of the holy prophets from ancient times. He says, picture this, he says, uh, what this is going to look like is that God is going to give us this refreshing life as we walk with him, not just dealing with all of the crud that we deal with, but to walk in victory as more than conquerors, knowing that all things work together for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, Romans 8, 28. The culmination of all that difficulty, that life that we slowly become more like Jesus, the culmination is that one day heaven is going to break open. And what we experience on a daily basis, knowing God, everyone will know publicly. That when the trumpet sounds and Christ comes back, the whole world will know and experience either the joy of the refreshing presence of God or the terror of the judgment. These things have been prophesied from the beginning and they will be coming to fruition. Peter then turns to a direct appeal. Look at these last couple of verses of 22 through 26. He talks about Moses. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. Look at verse 23. And it will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. We don't talk about this a lot because it doesn't feel good. We do a lot of feel-good stuff in church life, because it feels good to feel good, right? But here's the problem. Is that if we don't spend time in God's word, we can pretend to feel good. You know the only way that you can guarantee to feel good? Is if you give your life to Jesus. If you finally acknowledge yourself that, you know what, I suck at this. I'm really bad at this life thing. And you say honestly, you say honestly and you confess, God, I don't know what I'm doing and I need you. I don't just need your help. I need you completely. I've got nothing left. I've tried everything and I am done. See, Peter quotes Moses because Moses spoke of what Jesus, who Jesus was and what Jesus would call people to do, to repent and submit to the will of God for their lives. But those who don't listen to the testimony of Jesus the prophet, they're going to be utterly destroyed from among the people. The consequence of refusing repentance is destruction both in this life and for eternity. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is the eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. I know that some of you have, have been saved for a long time, but I want you to think about this. Think about this. We cannot hold salvation in one hand and play with our sin in our left with our other hand. It's cancer. 
I say then, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh wars against the Spirit, and the Spirit wars against the flesh. These are opposed to each other so that you don't do what you want. James tells us, why are you, why are you fighting amongst each other? Why are you having issues together? Because you're praying for things so you can consume it on your own lusts. Don't you know the Spirit that's in you yearns jealously for you? God is not content for us to walk in sin and claim to be children of God. The testimony of the Messiah naturally belongs to the children of Abraham first. And so Peter says, you guys have heard this from the beginning. And he says, and it's in your seed, the seed of all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The Jews were given the privilege of being the the means by which God blessed the world. And yet many of them threw it away. Peter's point here is that the Jews had the distinct honor of, of having the incredible testimony of faithfulness from the beginning till now if they would just believe in the Messiah. But these religious leaders, man, they're watching all this happen. This guy's jumping up and down. He's causing a scene. They're thinking, man, you know, a month ago, we thought we were all this was good. Jesus was dead, had him buried. There's this rumor about him walking around. We kind of quashed that by telling people that, you know, they stole the body. Of course, we can't produce the body because that's kind of hard because we can't find him. So we'll just make things up. But now these, man, alive, these guys... They just won't go away. They're trying to do their normal thing, right? They're trying to do their normal church thing, normal temple thing. They're getting ready for the sacrifices, the time of prayer in the evening, all the regular stuff that they do to make themselves feel important. And it's just this irritating little, there's this scene. People are starting to gather. Hundreds of people are gathering around these fishermen. These are fishermen. I'm surprised they know how to read. And yet they're all bent out of shape. But you know, when Peter and John entered the temple, everything was interrupted. This crippled man, still begging in his begging rags, was jumping up and down, disturbing everything. So what's the main point of this? That the miracle of a changed life redefines us and displays the love of God. These guys thought, The religious leaders thought that their job was to tell everyone about how great God was, but they were missing the whole point. And this guy was shining a magnifying glass on them. But you know, the thing is, godly living causes trouble. Look at these first four verses of chapter 4. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. This trouble, 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 trouble. As Peter and John were speaking, the priests began to notice, and so they called the temple guard to come and put hands on them. They were angry for two reasons. One is that They were teaching. These backwater rednecks who could barely write their names in Greek were teaching people in the temple. How dare you? You know, that sounds a lot like some things that people tell us as young adults or people tell us as uneducated. Here's the truth. If you know Jesus and you're a student of God's word, you are qualified to open your mouth. You are. Paul tells his protege, Timothy, he says, don't let anybody look down on you because you're young, but in everything, be an example. 
Be an example and dedicate yourself to reading God's word, to understanding doctrine, and encouraging others. This is what is significant about a child of God. They were, these, these religious leaders were, they were just angry. These, these guys are at it again. Man, I figured we just got rid of them. But they're more bold this time. Didn't they know the experts were teaching? Didn't they know they had to have a certain degree in order to be able to teach God's word? And yet here they are. They were also angry because they were teaching about Jesus. Not just Jesus, but he had been resurrected from the dead. Check this out. It says that the Sadducees were the ones who were driving this in verse 1. The Sadducees were were an interesting group of people. So within Judaism, there were several different sects of um, belief, uh, several different divisions of Hebrew religious leaders, right? The Sadducees were, um, were a unique bunch because they didn't believe that people would be raised from the dead. They thought there was no afterlife. This is all you had to experience God. Scripture tells us otherwise, that one day um, when the horn blows, that the dead will rise and we will meet him in the air. That there will be a physical resurrection just like Jesus was resurrected. He was the first resurrected one. Not only are these rednecks teaching about Jesus, but they're teaching that he was resurrected. Man, they didn't think that was possible. So what they do? They, they mustered all the might that they had. They grabbed the temple guard. They said, we're going to teach these guys a lesson. So they laid hands on them and laid them in prison. But it was too late in the day for them to be able to take, to, take them to trial, and so they waited until the morning. And so Peter and John ended their, their day in chains as they waited for their judgment. I think about this. As I was, as I was digging through this text, I, I, I began to wonder. Peter and John, they're in a cell, right? Presumably they're chained up. And I wonder what they're thinking. You know, about a month ago, the master was here. Maybe he was in this cell. You know, what are they going to do to us tomorrow? Oh, man, you know what? I really don't care. You see that guy jumped up? Man, if God can do that, what can't he do? Oh, you know what? What are we going to say? I mean, my Greek isn't the greatest. Your Greek is the second greatest. I don't speak any Greek. Exactly, mine's the second greatest. You know, I can't help but wonder. We're going to see next week how they respond. I love it. But the message here is that the crowd had heard the gospel and it had taken root. While Peter and John were locked in in chains, there's a revival happening outside. People are talking and asking questions and wondering. They were asking the religious leaders questions that they didn't have answers to. And yet, Peter and John just set out to go to church that day. And now they're in prison. Miracles cause trouble. There's opposition for those who walk with God, who see miracles happen. Why is that? The reason is because Satan hates miracles. Because miracles prove that God is intentional with us. Here's my encouragement to you. The most significant miracle that is going to take place in your life is God changing you from a sinful, selfish person into someone who is like Jesus. 
Do not for one second make that a small thing. Do not do it. Because there is nothing more powerful in your life than a heart that is committed to Christ. It changes everything. Have you ever met those people that after you spend five minutes with them, you feel like you're on top of the world? It's because they're refreshment. Have you ever met those people that you spend five minutes with and you want to go like jump in the lake? What God has called us to do is not necessarily the important thing. Who God has called us to be is the important thing. If we want to see change in our world, if we want to walk in victory, that means that we need to be sold out completely to what God has for us. If we want to see miracles happen and see, see God move in people's lives in incredible ways, that means that we need to be completely committed to what He has for us. No more doing things halfway. If you find yourself being consumed by negative thoughts and not being a refreshment, I would challenge you to make your heart right with God because that is not what He has for you. It's not true. And we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose. In a generation that is defined by depression, anxiety, critical self-image, and selfishness, we are called to be a sip of cold water in a desert of truth. This is who we are as believers. And we cannot settle for anything less. Hey guys, this is Philip Jackson, pastor of Young Adults at Evergreen Baptist Church. I want to invite you to come to Reach. We meet every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at Evergreen Church in South Tulsa, just east of Mingo on 111th Street. The mission of Reach Tulsa is to cultivate a young adult community that's defined by real transformation and a sincere pursuit of a godly life through training in biblical disciplines, personal development, and intentionally transitioning into independence as mature members of the body of Christ. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like and subscribe to our content. We're available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Reach Young Adult Ministry is a part of Evergreen Baptist Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. For more information and additional lessons, please visit our website, evergreenbc.org.